This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash africantech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Ashley Vesey has spent the last 20 years working in the UK, Europe, the US, Asia, and now Africa. Before his current gig as Chief Information Officer at Barclays Africa Group, Ashley served in senior leadership positions at behemoths like Citigroup and JP Morgan. Prior to joining Barclays, Ashley worked for Standard Chartered Bank as CIO in Singapore, Thailand, and Hong Kong, where he made a name for himself as a master of disruptive technologies. Nowadays, Ashley enjoys traveling and has an inexplicable passion for Italian motorbikes. You'll never guess what the man has under his skin, though. This is African Tech Conversations. Ashley VC, thank you so much for talking to me. Is it VC or VZ? VZ. Well, I'm going to ask you to do something for us, and that's please think back to your childhood and tell us what your favorite cartoon as a kid was. I guess it has to be the Flintstones. You remember that? I do remember the Flintstones, and I was taking a chance here because I have asked that question before, and uh, and uh, someone <laughs> someone said they didn't have cartoons as a kid, which you obviously did. I, so I was guess, guessing by how old you look. I guessed you must be in the TV era, and I certainly do remember the Flintstones. And I'm going to ask you to, to think back to a specific morning, afternoon, whatever, when you were watching the Flintstones. Are you there? Do you remember what the the episode was about? I don't know if it's the episode, but what I remember is how the Flintstones used to have all those wonderful innovations back in the Stone Age days, the prehistoric days. You know when they'd get into their car and it would look really cool, but it was their feet that were powering it? I love that stuff. That was so funny. Yeah, and it would break with their feet. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you're, you're right, yeah. <laughs> and that specific memory I just asked you to, to sort of summon. How old are you? guess about 10 years old. Where are you? At home in Norwich, Norfolk, living with my parents. Are you watching it alone? Yeah, I was. Only child? Yeah. Tell me a little more about that world. Sights, sounds, smells. Maybe a good way to, to, to get you into that world is the Flintstones is over, credits are flying on the screen, and you're like, so done, and you're leaving the room to go do what? Back in those days, you know, um, there was no Xbox. Um, TV stations were limited. We probably had about four, I think, at that point. Actually, probably only about three at that point in time. Activities were outdoor. We'll be outside, you know, um, building go-karts out of a couple of orange crates and some old pram wheels, riding our bikes everywhere, going out at 9 o'clock in the morning, coming back at 5 in the evening without a care in the world. And unfortunately, you can't do that these days. And the whole world has changed. And what kind of neighborhood is this? Is this a working-class neighborhood? Is it uh, suburban? What's it? Yeah, suburban, good, solid working-class background. Right, so let's fast forward to 2015. What's your favorite TV show now? Got to be Game of Thrones, man. That's fantastic. I love that. I haven't watched a single episode of that. You should do. It's like real corporate life. No, surely not. You have thrones hiding in here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we've got a few kings and queens as well, yeah. <laughs> and so where do you watch that and who with? Well, look, uh, I'm I'm living in Africa by myself, you know, in this, uh, in this great nation. Uh, my kids are, are at school or at university back in the U.K., uh, we try and synchronize the times that we watch this. So we're kind of virtually watching it together. Um, and unfortunately, there's there's normally like a 
like a five or ten minute gap when they screened it on the UK versus Africa. So my damn kids are always ruining the punchline and telling me what's happening and saying, oh, no, Jon Snow was dead. Oh, come on, guys. Why did you tell me that? So um, by myself, but virtually with the family. So what, with uh, with uh, Skype going in the background or what? Are they watching? Are you on WhatsApp with them? What? Everything, man. We're using like WhatsApp, uh, Skype, or use FaceTime a hell of a lot as well. We also write letters from time to time as well. Still some old traditions left, yeah? Tell me a little more about this world you live in now. So we've got children, and how old are they? Well, my oldest is at university. He's uh, Chris is now 20, and I have my second son about to start university, and my little baby girl, although she's not so much a baby, 15 years old, but she'll always be my baby. Um, she's at a, she's at a kind of secondary school, I guess you'd call that high school here. I've been here for about a year now, you know, as opposed to, you know, living in, in Asia for the past 15 years. And I find myself in this wonderful country, very different from Asia in many, many respects, but uh, getting used to it, kind of liking it and enjoying it. And, uh, like you say, you've worked in Asia, but, uh, also worked in Europe, the U S and, uh, specifically prior to your role here at Barclays, you worked, uh, for Stein and Chartered Bank. I hope you answer honestly, which continent so far in terms of personal growth has delivered the most for you, where you learned the most? If I have to be honest, I guess I would say Asia, not necessarily because of anything that's majorly different from Africa or from the Middle East or the U S or Europe, where I've also worked and lived, but I think because of the longevity of of the time I spend there, I spent five years in Thailand, five years in Singapore, and five years in Hong Kong and China, and I've only been in Africa for one year. Um, but I think in, in terms of personal growth, when you look across the whole of the Asia region, every country is so culturally different and rich, and I'm sure that's the same here in Africa. So I'm really looking forward to working in Barclays here in Africa. Right, let's see. Um, I want you to share the most important lessons you learned from all the places you've lived so far. And you've mentioned some. They don't necessarily have to be business lessons. It can be life lessons, whatever. Well, I think if I look at, if I can maybe start off by looking at all of those countries, if I look across every single continent and even within inside of a continent, several different countries, I think the one thing I learn consistently is that every culture is different. There's not one perfect or best culture, but if you take the best of each of those, it can really enrich you as an individual. Um, and there's some wonderful experiences. Let me give you an example. So being in Thailand, for example, there is no official word for no in Thailand. So you can imagine you're at work and you're asking for someone to drop a report on your desk on Monday morning and you say, is it going to be ready? They kind of won't necessarily say no. They'll say, mm, yes which means it's not going to be ready. So you have to read body language. You have to read the intonation in people's voices. If you go to China and Hong Kong, they're amongst some of the best executors of projects. They'll deliver something. They'll look at all of the angles. It'll be done when they say on time within the right budget. Some other cultures, maybe I've worked in take Cambodia or Vietnam. They're not so industrious, but they're very creative. And the flip side of that is you look at some somewhere like, again, Hong Kong or China, they're not so creative. So if you can assemble teams and you can take the best of those lessons, the cultural lessons can actually make you quite successful at work and how you build teams and pull everybody together. And so what did you study at Vastu? How has what you chose to study influenced the career you'd have? Wow. 
I had an interesting education. I started off doing my A-levels, which is your two years qualifications before you start university in the UK. I started off doing, what was it, crazy subjects, biology, sociology, and history. And I hated them. After the first six months, I quit those, and I went to do a foundation course in computer science. I was really interested in computers. And that was at the time when you had the first personal computers coming out onto the market. If anybody knows those, they were old AT86 computers with green screen monitors and 20 megabyte hard drives, which were the biggest that you could ever get as a home computer. Interested in that. And then uh, I eventually went to university to do a full computer science degree. And I think that's one of the lessons that I always pass on to my graduates who join me here in uh, in Barclays Bank is that, you know, um, really uh, find a career in something and study a career, study for a career in something that you really enjoy and you'll be successful. Look at the great guys out there, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. They're successful because they en- enjoy what they do, not necessarily because of some perceived um, value around remuneration or fame, but do something that you really enjoy, and you'll be very successful in your life and in your career too. Who stands out as the most influential person in your life? Perhaps as a child first, uh, and then perhaps as a student later, and as a corporate professional. It has to be my parents, inspirational throughout my childhood. Uh, not easy. Um, I was uh, from a solid working class background. My parents didn't have much money when I was young. They paid for my education by working very hard, doing several jobs to put me through university. And then in my corporate life, probably the last boss that I had, a gentleman over at Standard Chartered Bank who was the chief information officer there, who really taught me the power of uh, what technology can do for an organization to make sure that technology is at the forefront of the organization and you challenge uh, in the right way your business to get the right results, to focus on your customers, and a combination of that can really power any any organization. His name was uh, uh, Jan Verplank. We we also had a very close personal relationship um, over, over the years. And I still talk to Jan. He's now retired, uh, living in Belgium with his family. Uh, but very close friends now. Right, and I believe you served a short stint in a startup around the dot-com era and then went back to banking. What is it about working in large corporates that you couldn't find working for a startup? Well, you got to remember, right? So when you come from a big corporate with everything done for you, go to a very small company where you're one of only two or three people and you have to do everything yourself. And that can be fun. And it was for a few weeks. Then realization slowly creeps in. Right, You have to do literally everything soup to nuts. And whilst I enjoyed the experience, it did make me realize that I I really enjoyed being part of a larger group of people, having to deal with people on a daily basis, managing lots of people in my team. That's something that that I really enjoy, that human interaction. But I guess I tried to do both here, and especially at Barclays with our approach to innovation. We're almost a collection of startups inside of the bank. So... Yeah, that's what I enjoy. So I get the best of both worlds. I get to have my cake and eat it, as we say. Was your leaning into financial services intentional? Because two things strike me about you. Firstly, um, the average techie might not necessarily enjoy corporate or the idea of corporate. Perhaps, perhaps not. Perhaps that's a stereotype I, I possess. The other thing is that definitely looking at all the stuff you've done with your life so far, career-wise, 
you definitely seem to have an intentional focus of being in financials in in the financial industry. When did that leaning begin? How much of that was intentional? Okay, so we're talking right back in the 1980s, 1990s now, right? Let's go back several years. And when I was at university, there were typically three career options for someone doing computer science. So that point in time, one, you could go off and try and be a management consultant, travel the world, and that's a very glamorous kind of career. Or you could perhaps go to financial services, which paid the most money. Or thirdly, go and do something really cool and crazy like missile defense guidance systems, warfare with computers. I decided to go in for banking. I had a few friends who worked um, at Citibank, and I joined their graduate training program. And I think I've been very fortunate over the past many years by being able to combine in a way all three of those you know, i get a great kick out of working in a large organization especially financial services because you've always got to be 10 steps ahead of everybody else um, secondly we do develop a lot of cool stuff here and i built software companies for jp morgan for example in places like barbados in glasgow and scotland uh, i've created an innovation hub so there's a startup scenario there i've consulted the people internally in the bank so all of those early um pre-graduation desires i've experienced in one shape or form but still by being inside of a financial institution i think i've been quite fortunate there now I'll contrast if you can the daily grind of being an executive in a more traditional tech environment like a technology firm I believe you, you you had a stint at sea technologies south sea versus say Citigroup and jp morgan and barclays i think they're all interesting and they all help you develop to develop Working at Sear Technologies, which was a very small startup out of America, which was a joint venture between CSFB, Credit Suisse First Boston, and IBM. I was one of two people who joined their European startup. And we were literally operating out of a telephone box in Heathrow Airport. It was that small and very nascent. Uh, a lot of great lessons learned out of that. Um, clearly working in a large corporate, you get a whole different set of experiences. Um, but as I said before, uh, I think I've been very fortunate, and I know a number of my colleagues are, and that if you combine your experiences, then you can really take on what we're seeing happening in the financial services industry now. We're seeing a lot of new disruptors coming to this particular market in fintech. And I think because of the experience that I've had personally, I'm able to react to that a lot better than perhaps some of my more traditional colleagues may have done themselves. We're going to talk about that in a bit. You know, I know that technology has always been at the heart of what makes financial institutions like Barclays work, but you know, what are some of the technological IT functions you're responsible for executing that perhaps the average Barclays client or you know, the average consumer takes for granted? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to realize that we are a bank, after all, at the end of the day, and our responsibility is to maintain the safety and security of our customers' money. Um, that's what a bank is all about. So there's a basic premise there, which, sure, um, our customers are not probably aware of what we do. They just expect the ATM to work, quite rightly. They expect to go to a branch and to take money or to deposit money. They expect to be able to transact on online banking channels, which are becoming the norm these days in, in most countries. So there's a lot that does go on behind the scenes. And that's probably about 70 80% of my job, my role here in Barclays in serving our customers. The other 30 20% is really looking into the future to see what new technologies we can use, deploy out there to help our customers, to help my colleagues inside of the bank, for example, to be more efficient and effective. So yeah, there's a, there's a balance we need to maintain. But the basic premise is 
keep our customers' money safe and help them to grow that. So Barclays' uh, most high-profile asset in South Africa uh, would be ABSA, a highly publicized takeover of that business. Unfortunately, ABSA has been known to lag behind other big banks when it comes to innovation. What are your plans to change that perception? How do you see your role coming from perhaps a more innovative environment and now playing here? I think it's a great question, and I think it's a fair point. ABSA... Uh, the Barclays brand here in Africa, hasn't traditionally been associated with the word innovation. One would assume that if there's a brand recall on the words innovation and banking, perhaps FNB or Standard Bank may get an edge. But it's about to change, and I think for a number of reasons. One, mainly, I think because of our relationship with our parent group, Barclays, uh, there's a whole host of wonderful new innovations, new technologies we're able to experiment in and bring here to help the community, citizens, customers of the bank in Africa. Secondly, we're also investing considerable money in creating experimentation hubs for innovation. We're investing quite heavily in ecosystems to help us identify and spot the best new technologies, which may not necessarily be in financial services. They could be in, for example, artificial intelligence or in medtech, things which may not be obvious that they can help financial services, um, but they could actually help for us to be um, more responsible, perhaps, in the community within which we operate. So there's a lot of things that are happening right now, and I think over the next few months, we're going to start seeing uh, more headlines. Um, To add on to, for example, the last uh, innovation we released into the market, which was we were the first bank in Africa to launch the Apple Watch, an app on the Apple Watch, simple simple check that enables someone to bring up a balance and to check their credit card statement on the fly just by looking at that at that watch. So there's more of that in the pipeline, and uh, watch this space. Well, let's talk about fintech, and let's talk about mobile money specifically. What I reckon is turning into a rather embarrassing situation for the banking fraternity on the continent, uh, especially in East Africa, where you have mobile networks like Safaricom, Econet in Zimbabwe, and you know others, absolutely killing it with their mobile money services. And in many cases, my, my sense of it is the banks have had this amazing legacy business for decades and the opportunity to, quite frankly, bring on board clients or bank the unbanked for the longest time. And only in the face of all this disruption, waking up to it. What happened? And what are you doing about it? I think you're right. If we're perfectly honest, um, banks and financial institutions in general have been quite slow to react to the growing fintech community industry out there. And I think that's for a number of reasons. Banks haven't necessarily been that nimble in their approach to innovation and their investment. When you see the types of people that you have out there who are leading these fintech operations, um, they're quite ballsy young guys. Um, They're not necessarily out there to make money. They're out there to do something they really enjoy doing. And I think banks have to take that or bring that culture on the inside, whereas we've been quite traditional in our approach to recruitment, to retaining and developing our own people and incentivizing them. What I would like to do here at Barclays in Africa is to almost turn ourselves into a technology company inside of the bank. So perhaps in two or three years' time, you walk inside here when we have the next podcast, and you're talking to people, maybe my successor, who knows, And they could be from Google or from Facebook. Well, this place looks like a real software development company. We have to start being, and this is generally in the banking environment, to be able to compete against those fintech companies. We have to be a lot more nimble. 
faster, agile. We have to have a culture of fail fast, fail forward in experimentation. And for many, many reasons, that hasn't happened. But it's, it starts now. The old world has stopped and the new world is moving ahead. And here at Barclays in Africa, we're changing that. Well, certainly 20, 30 years ago, you didn't need to. <laughs> you certainly have to now. Absolutely right. I mean, you look at our uh, banking systems that we have uh, in banks in general. They're typically based upon maybe 30, 20 years old technology. But by the way, it's actually very stable. A lot of people call that legacy. Here we call it heritage. Sounds a bit nicer, right? Am I speaking to a PR dude or am I speaking to the CIO here? What's going down? <laughs> well, we always try to put a positive spin on these things, you can understand. But quite seriously, these, these older technologies are very, very, very stable, very, very reliable. What they're not that good at actually is um, connecting new innovations or new functions and, and features in, um, in there. On the outside, you're seeing a bunch of new guys with their startups who don't have that legacy. I was in China only two weeks ago, and we met with Alibaba and their subsidiary and financial services who had a banking license. We also met with uh, Tencent and their subsidiary, WeBank, who have their own banking license. Both who got those licenses last year, 2014. Now, this is interesting, right? So these companies have created this wonderful new distributed architecture um, that services their customers. They have no legacy. They don't have that that old world to navigate away from. All they have to do is just build the new, and they've done that in about six months. And financial services, for example, now have one of the largest market, uh, money market funds in the world after Fidelity, J.P. Morgan, and some of the other big players. Uh, they expect to have around... 250 million customers by the year 2019. Go figure, right? So that's uh, that's pretty ambitious, but I think that's probably a conservative estimate. And the advantage they have is they don't have the, the legacy or the heritage that we have. But here we have the plans to move away from that. So we're pretty confident we'll be able to do something fairly similar, especially in the Africa market where... You know, the population, 1 billion, 80% of the population is unbanked. And it's about delivering not just financial services, but useful services to people. Where behind there, there's, there's clearly some financial need, some, some banking requirement. But it's about reaching out to that wide population of people, building new technology to be able to do that and making it cost effective from a banking perspective. My question after hearing that is, are African banks, namely in this case Barclays, looking into developing machine learning algorithms from the amount of data you have or are we just waiting for the rest of the world to crack it as usual? Actually, in the area of data and analytics, I'd say we're probably one of the leaders in the world here. Uh, we're one of the first banks to appoint a chief data officer in the UK. Uh, that gentleman's name is Usama Fayed, who is in fact the first chief data officer, CDO, in the world. He was over at Yahoo at the time many years ago, and the story goes that the management team wanted to do something with data. They appointed Usama, who was one of the leading lights there, and they dreamt up the title of chief data officer. So we then appointed our own chief data officer, who works for Osama, here in, in Africa. And the agenda that that person has is uh, pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, they're looking at all of the petabytes of information we have, how we analyze that to come up with real customer insights. We've launched a few experiments in that area. We have a couple of uh, live systems which are feeding off of that, and it, it's going pretty well. So I, I actually say we're quite advanced in that area. 
And there's a perception that uh, you outsource IT infrastructure projects to foreign companies. Is this true? And if so, if there's such a preference, why so? I think one of the advantages of working in a, in a global economy is you can leverage resources um, and resource pools in many different countries. And as I've, I've explained a little bit earlier in the conversation, there's, there's benefits in taking people from different cultures and getting them to work together. Um, at any one point in time, there may be an, undeve- an underdeveloped skill in a particular market, and we might have to reach out to a different market to do that. Now, here at Barclays, clearly we're quite well positioned to be able to leverage pools of labor, intelligence, skills in many different markets. But one trend we are seeing is that whilst there is typically a perceived cost arbitrage in going, say, offshore, we're now actually seeing this potentially a need to be more onshore because with a whole new approach to Agile, uh, when you've got development teams sitting together in one location, they can actually work typically a lot faster than in a model where resources are distributed around the world. That in turn makes the cost profile even lower. So we're starting to see quite a, a an interesting move now, I think, to more predominantly onshore models. Part of what might plague the banking industry, Barclays perhaps as well, uh, this idea that banks will do anything that suits the profit motive. And if building the local ecosystem, Africa's ecosystem, doesn't fit in, in that agenda, it might never happen. Is there a commitment on some level to, to contribute to that, whether or not it makes business sense? Here at Barclays, we appreciate that we not only have a role in fulfilling our shareholders' dreams and desires from a profit perspective and clearly from a share price, but we also uh, recognize that we have a very large role in our community. Uh, there's a number of initiatives there which we're running, uh, looking at talent, for example. How do we accelerate and develop and put young talent into more senior challenging positions to enable them to grow to be the leaders of the future? We're heavily investing in local ecosystems in the financial technology areas. We've got a facility now in Cape Town we opened, which is called Tech Lab Africa, and that's just started its first cohort of startups, and they're predominantly startups from around all of Africa, not just in South Africa. We're seeing a lot of uh, interest there. We've got startups who are involved in the medtech space, in the traditional fintech space. We're about to launch another accelerator in, uh, in one country in Africa, which I can't mention now, but that's in conjunction with a very large uh, U.S. accelerator name, and we hope that's going to help develop more, um, more, not necessarily business for us, but it's also going to develop those those ecosystems that you just mentioned. And we've also got our eye on places like um, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, potentially also in uh, West Africa too. We see a lot of ecosystems there, and Barclays is very determined to be on the ground and to open up some of those ecosystems Sure, there's a benefit for us, but we recognize there's perhaps an even bigger benefit for the community in helping to develop that and the skill sets in those locations too. We're taking a quick break to remind you of Audible's pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Personally, I recommend David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants by Malcolm Gladwell. It's a great read, but you can pretty much download any audiobook of your choice for free by trying audible.com. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash africantech. 
That's audibletrial.com slash africantech for your free audiobook. Now back to the conversation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I reckon the strategic role of someone like you or someone with your skill sets in an organization like Barclays would have been totally different 20 years, 30 years ago. Am I right in saying that you perhaps didn't have the willingness to, to offer you a seat at the strategy table 30 years ago to influence the actual vision and direction the organization would take weren't open to you? until recently, or perhaps until at least the, next, the last decade. Yeah, you're right. Many years ago, the strategy of the bank was the strategy, and technology was an enabler and a supporter of that. I think we're very fortunate here in Barclays to have an executive leadership team under Maria Ramos as the chief executive, who she and all of her executive team members actually understand the future is only about technology. And so we've talked... In, in many different, I mean, very interesting conversations with Maria and her management team that perhaps our aspiration is more around technology than we've ever thought before. Perhaps, for example, as I mentioned earlier, that we might be more of a technology company than we should perhaps be of a traditional bank. But a technology company that focuses on developing financial services or banking services for for um, consumers. Um, again, you look at a, a new bank in China, WeBank, I mentioned them earlier. WeBank don't even talk about banking services. They talk about useful services. Uh, so they're actually a technology-enabled bank that's developing services for consumers. Underneath that, of course, there's a, a financial transaction takes place, but it's more about how do they help individuals. Um, but I really see the leadership team here at Barclays as one organization, and that's the reason why I joined from my previous organization. I really see that they understand the need for technology and, and how it drives the future strategy of the bank. Do you see the attitude changing towards disruptive forces that impact the way banks have been doing businesses for decades? And what is the attitude towards the very real possibility that Barclays and a host of others could become MBA case studies for what not to do? Well, look, let me give you some proof points. We've developed our own technology strategy here at the bank, and that's very much focused on how do we turn, a lot of people refer to this word IT. I don't like that word. IT suggests to me a technology department manned by Dilbert. You've seen the cartoons, right? From Love Dilbert. Yeah, we love him too, right? <laughs> we need to get our daily fix. But Dilbert's from like the 1980s, 1990s. And before that, we used to be called data processing departments. It, you probably weren't even born then, right? Probably not. If it's pre-84, pre you can have it. Those are the days of the Flintstones. So we've been known as data processing or DP departments. And for me, that's, that's an old and anachronistic way of viewing technology. So we talk here about technology and becoming a technology company. And that's why when we put our story together, we're now seeing a lot of people on the outside who are interested in working for us that we would never have thought have been interested in coming to us several years ago. Uh, we just recruited a couple of uh, really fantastic guys from Google. And when I sat down and interviewed them, I said to them, why on earth would you want to work for a bank? They said, well, actually, it's because we've heard your story. We've heard what, what you're doing out there. We've seen what you've been doing with blockchain experiments. We see what you've been doing with AI. We see what you've been doing down in Cape Town in, in the hub there and what you might be doing in Joburg and Nairobi. We kind of like that. And we want to be part of that journey. If there's going to be one bank that disrupts or... You know, we're under disruption ourselves, so if there's kind of reverse disruption you know, against all of those guys out there, the fintech firms who are eating our 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we believe this is the bank that can do it. So they're interested in that journey. So it's a, it's a great proof point. And who do you rely on personally to keep your ear to the ground for trends and opportunities? And, and which one, if you picked one, is keeping you up at night? Uh, opportunities and threats. My team here, they are who ground me. And it's always a risk when somebody new comes into the organization at a senior level and you don't understand the culture necessarily. You don't understand the, the way of doing things currently. And you want to run away at 10,000 miles an hour and affect change. My team here is a great mix. We've got some people who have been in this industry for many years. We've got some people who have come from the outside, from new parallel industries, uh, people who clearly understand the different cultures around Africa. They're the ones that keep me grounded. They're the ones who give me that kind of little slap if I run away too quickly and uh, they bring me back down to earth. So that that works incredibly well. And I'm really proud of my team here. The one thing that perhaps keeps me awake at night and that now I think everybody is sold on the vision of where we want to take this bank through technology and they want to do it fast. And they want to do it perhaps a little bit faster even than I do. And so there's a plethora of ideas which come out every day. And so I'll get, we have WhatsApp conversations with the team uh, or what is talking simply on the phone. And they want to move really fast. And they're saying, boss, how on earth can we do this? Um, and that's a fantastic problem or conversation to have actually into the evening. And what do you sieve out? How do you decide what to focus on? I mean, I think given you, given what's going on, given all the disruption, given all the the, 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 given how the fintech space has just exploded, how do you decide what to obsess over and what to sort of just leave alone or walk past? Well, a couple of things there. First of all, we clearly work very closely with our business partners. Um, I can't go off and I shouldn't go off and try and build the world myself. We have a business to run here. So our heads of corporate investment banking, our heads of uh, wealth uh, insurance, and our, especially our health of uh, our head of uh, uh, retail and the business bank. We all work very, very smartly, very closely to determine what the focus should be for the next several years, 10 years ahead. I was in a strategy session with uh, with those various people over the uh, over the past few weeks looking at what our 10-year vision might be. Um, now, once we understand that, then I think that the second thing we have to do is to, is to create this culture of fast experimentation. So we know where our business wants to go, but it's not a matter of the traditional way which you typically run a project and something 18 months later would suddenly appear. We have to get into concepts of growth hacking. We have to try something and release it to the market, not in 18 months, but perhaps in four weeks. Try it. See if it works. Retrench it if it doesn't work. Throw it away. Work on something differently. We actually have to start learning a lot from the startups out there, from the fintech startups out there. Um, and we're starting to see some some good traction and good progress there. Clearly, there's there's always um, a, an element and a cultural resistance. We'll we'll find some antibodies somewhere, and you'd see that in any organization. But we're we're absorbing the antibodies really fast, and we're getting out there and uh, trying things um, at quite a pace. Sounds like lean startup methodology, failing fast, all those good things. Yeah, absolutely, spot on. And so, while Africa's finance industry is relatively more information or data rich, you know, than than other sectors, than some sectors uh, within you know Africa's economy, if you can even call it that, Africa still lags Europe and the U.S. and Asia. All these places you've worked um, in terms of having reliable, usable data that informs decision making, which, which of course I know corporates love. So, didn't it freak you out moving from places like you worked before, coming to Africa, where, quite frankly, the biggest threats seem to be coming from places you have 
have no data to mine. Actually, the corollary of that is true. That's the reason, exact reason why I decided to come here to Africa because of the opportunity. And I had the experience of working in many markets in the US, Europe, several countries in Asia. And that's taught me a lot of useful lessons. What I like doing, and I and uh, maybe my my bosses will be upset with me for saying this, but I, I find it difficult to work in a head office. I like to be in areas of opportunity. I like to be in markets that are underdeveloped because I see the power and the potential. That's my preference. That's what that's what kicks me off. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. So when you look at the opportunity here. And the ability we have to build, whether it's, you mentioned before, the data infrastructure or to build AI capabilities or to reach out into our community and start providing financial services to 80% of the population who don't have a bank account, I think there's many of us in this organization that really gets turned on by that. And, and that's what drives us. So it's more the opportunity rather than being freaked out. To something else now, let's be honest, the global economy is in trouble. We have dodgy politicians and unprecedented greed uh, within the financial industry in, in, in large respect. Many people are hoping that, you know, the ongoing democratization of the internet, uh, the emergence of decentralized mobile money technologies, things like Bitcoin, the blockchain will deliver us from evil, as it were. <laughs> so how do you operate, uh, given your role here at Barclays, you must be aware of these perceptions. How do you make sense of them? And, and what are your thoughts on them? Well, clearly since... 2008 and the global financial tsunami that that hit us banks have have typically had a negative perception and there's lots of work which we in banking and finance need to do to restore faith and trust in in banking from my perspective within one area of such a bank in technology what we're trying to do is to find new ways more effective ways more responsible ways ways in which fit into a customer's life cycle for how they wish to bank. Banks have typically been keen to force ways of banking on customers. And I think we have a responsibility for us to really understand a bit better what our customers want. When do they want to bank? How do they want to bank? Uh, what time of night or day do they want to do that? We have to almost try and insert ourselves into a customer's life cycle, whether it's in the process of buying a car or buying a house or opening a bank account you're a new student we have to customize our services a lot more and i think when we start doing that then it's going to start bringing a lot more faith and trust backing back into into banking how soon are we going to see cardless banking in south africa or indeed the rest of africa but you can see it already right there are some areas where banks including ourselves and other banks in africa do have cardless cardless banking even down to organizations like mpesa right startups there you don't need a card to bank there it's an alternative way to move money around i think there are a number of elements there right it's 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 uh the availability of of, of networks that exist to move money around it's the banks uh, merchants other organizations investing in those in those uh, ecosystems to grow them out clearly we're several steps behind we in africa are several steps behind some of the more developed markets but I'll give you one example of where this possibility has, has really taken off out of, out of need. Uh, the Philippines, for example, has one of the most developed payments markets, mobile payments markets, anywhere in the world. When you think about the Philippines, it's 100, 200, I don't know how many, thousands of islands. And so there's a wide distribution across those many thousands of islands. And so the need there to send money if, uh, 
perhaps if you're a helper or a domestic worker, uh, remittances, you can't walk to a branch to send money somewhere. So with the rise of mobile phones, simple Nokia gray screen phones, um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, the payments market there, mobile payments market developed very, very quickly. And I think in Africa, we're seeing that phenomenon too. Um, that the sheer geographical challenge of this particular market, banks can't and shouldn't put bricks and mortar anywhere. And that's clearly part of our strategy. We're looking at how we can reach out to people through online, through mobile, through new features uh, in, in moving money around and investing as well. There are lots of other things you can do with your mobile device, uh, not just by making simple payments. So the, the the continent is ripe for this, for helping people to do this. Africa is is, uh, is a land of opportunities. Tell me whether your role allows you to dabble as a VC or a startup founder or a, an advisor to, to up-and-coming you know, startup firms in the tech scene. So, so part of our responsibility yeah, in the community, um, we give our employees time, in the community to do a number of, um, I think here it's called CSI, but I, I've known it in Asia as CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, getting out there and working with the underprivileged and doing something good, um, perhaps selfishly because even if it makes you feel good, or unselfishly because you just really want to help the community. You know, we give people the opportunity to get out there and make things happen, to be an active part in the community. And some of the, the other ways we can do that, and especially in the technology world, if you look at job-related volunteering, is to be out there talking with startups, helping them to develop, giving them advice, mentoring, guidance. Um, but that's also not, not think that um, we're the only ones who can give advice. Uh, we'd like to do reverse mentoring too. I have a number of colleagues in the bank who I'm sure would love to speak out, uh, to, to be spoken to or to be consulted to by young technology entrepreneurs who see a different way of banking and can can reverse mentor we also through our facilities in cape town and uh, others to be developed very soon through our rise program uh, that's our our innovation program across africa barclays rise we are bringing in cohorts of tech startups 10 at a time we're giving them mentoring guidance advice uh, taking a stake in those particular entities isn't necessarily a priority for us, an equity stake. It's more about how we can work with those companies to really redefine the future of banking. I'd like you to uh, share what you'd consider your most diabolical failing as an executive. How you recovered from it and what you learned. Diabolical failing. Diabolical, yes. That's a very intentional, intentional use of that word, yes. Right. Hey, look, I mentioned one earlier on when I was working for a different bank, we created this software company in Barbados. And it was a great idea at the time, right? This was in the early days, uh, mid-1990s, where you would uh, try and leverage resource pools around the world and Indian uh, skills excellence was coming to the fore. And trying to get our traders and dealers in the New York office to go and spend, you know, get on a flight for 10 hours or get on the phone and do requirements analysis with people halfway around the world was pretty tough. So we thought we'd be quite clever and said, well, if we can't bring them to India, let's bring really highly skilled uh, Indian people, software engineers, to sit in the time zone, which was close to New York. So we struck a deal, cut a long story short, we struck a deal with the Barbadian government and we created a software company 
in Barbados. What we didn't realize at that particular point in time is that when you move highly skilled, intellectual, hungry, young Indian talent halfway around the world into Barbados, which is in striking distance of Wall Street and Silicon Valley, guess what? You know where they want to be, right? They don't want to be stuck on an island in the middle of the Caribbean. So the, the attrition numbers went through the roof. That's kind of something we should have probably thought about beforehand, but now we didn't. So we, we closed down the venture after experimenting after, I think it was two years. But uh, hey, it was great to have our team meetings on the beach in Barbados. You'd have uh, flying fish fried sandwiches, you know, and uh, yeah, meetings with no shoes. You'd feel, you know, sand between your toes. That was great. It, so it lasted for a couple of years. But uh, yeah, probably a failing, I'd say. And jerk chicken. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Well, that's a really good one. Uh, do you have any advice for technology pros that aspire to executive leadership in corporate? I think it's a piece of advice that I give to all of my new grads when they start in the company. Again, it's about enjoying yourself, doing something you really enjoy and are really good at, but also not looking up opportunities, which might seem a little bit strange at the time, right? If someone says to you, hey, we want you to go and run a tech shop in Cambodia, or we want you to go and... Um, look at something different in Latin America, right? Keep your minds open to opportunities. And I think I've been able to grow with several different fantastic companies because I've been quite brave and I've got a very supportive family, uh, to be fair, who have allowed us to uh, move into different locations to try new and different things. And trust, I think, that, uh, you know, your bosses have their... Uh, have your intentions right in their heart to, to, to develop you. I think there are some great leaders, some great bosses out there, and a little bit of trust. Um, take up those opportunities. Try something different. I'd like to know which part of Africa has proved the most time-consuming for you, at, you know, given your role. Uh, time-consuming, labor-intensive to service from a tech perspective. And uh, is there any correlation between how, how time-consuming and labor-intensive and how much money or return on investment uh, you've seen from that market? Well, it's a simple answer, really. It, it clearly is South Africa. That's where um, circa 80% of our business for Barclays, Barclays Africa Group Limited, is centered. Uh, Sorry, and just out of interest, what is it? Is it investment banking, retail banking, structured finance? What, what kind of banking? I spend the majority of my time helping our retail and business banking colleagues inside the bank. Clearly, uh, we also have a very, very fast-developing corporate and investment bank and also a wealth management and insurance business but when you look at the potential for disruption by fintech firms especially on the outside that's that's more the preserve of the retail customers individuals retail banking and business banking and that's perhaps where technology will have the majority of uh a positive impact if we get that right so yeah i spend a lot of my time there especially in south africa absolutely not at all ignoring our other businesses in many countries across africa but because of the size of our business here being a universal bank yeah that's where i'm centered in my thinking and helping my business colleagues build out their their technology world I like asking my subjects to put on a futurist cap from time to time and predict which business models and or companies within tech and fintech, perhaps banking even, are going to bite the dust in the next 15 years. <laughs> Very hard to tell, but you look at some of the trends that are happening, right? Um, take China, for example. China grew to prominence with, you know, say, take companies like Alibaba 
mainly through their software um, intelligence and their ability to build out software and the scale and the complexity in a very short space of time. But they're also now getting into some of the areas which we thought there was global dominance by, say, U.S. firms. In the hardware, for example, you look at the dominance of companies such as IBM, Oracle, um, some of the big uh, storage firms out there as well. Uh, the Chinese are building their own solutions, and they're building them really fast. As I said, I spent a couple of um, days there a few weeks ago, and even though I was very familiar with that market, the rate of pace and change is its both terrifying uh, from a competitive perspective, but also fascinating from an opportunity perspective. Um, and that's that's what I enjoy, is how do we... How do I push my bank to the forefront? How do I help our customers? So I think um, some of the traditional models that you're seeing with European U.S. dominance, I think they'll they'll fade. The rise of, of the East and the manufacturers there. Um, I think the potential we have in Africa to, to lead in innovation is right up there. Um, you know, just out of again, as I said earlier, pure pure needs. How do you make payments? How do you do things at great speed and with automated thinking? So AI, big data, analytics. Um, how do you utilize technologies such as blockchain, which have the potential to completely disrupt banks? How do we leverage and harness that to help our customers? And I think this is, this is the region where we'll see a lot of uh, new growth and new ideas arising. You've mentioned uh, blockchain technology at least three or four times in this interview. Would you consider that the the next big thing in terms of disruptive fintech, uh, finding um, applications for the blockchain? I think it's one of them. Some of the others would clearly be around uh, AI. Um, AI, for example, how do we make routine decisions in the bank more more effective? Um, how do we help customers with the use of AI to make financial decisions, perhaps routine financial decisions? Again, the use of um, big data. But when it comes to blockchain, I think, and I, and I can give you an example, but uh, blockchain has the potential to disrupt from a uh, perspective of not needing a third party to process payments. I can send a payment to you via the public internet using blockchain without needing a bank in the middle. So go figure, right? So I think banks have to get into that way of thinking that if payments potentially will be free in the future, what services, added value services do we offer to our customers. But there's also some quite interesting uses of blockchain. In our London accelerator for Barclays London, uh, we found a really interesting company called Everledger. Now, Everledger uh, uses blockchain to store information, in this particular use case, of diamonds. So you have an irrefutable uh, 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 set of information. You can determine the provenance of any diamond when, say, you want to sell it or insure it. And you can imagine the use of that, and it stops fraud, uh, will enable uh, a consumer to be able to buy perhaps cheaper insurance. So the, the use of blockchain, everyone thinks it's Bitcoin, but it's not. The technology behind that, um, I think, is going to enable a few different um, scenarios that we haven't seen before in the industry. Well, cool. I'm happy to let you know. It's all downhill from here. Do you own any wearable technology? If so, tell us why. And if not, why not? Well, I, I do have a... I have an Apple Watch. Um, as I said, we were the first bank to launch um, an app on the Apple Watch in Barclays, Africa. Which he's not wearing at the moment, of course. Which which I'm not wearing because it's it's packed in my suitcases. I'm getting on a plane to London tomorrow. Nice save. <laughs> but I also have an interesting experiment uh, which is embedded in me, 
from 2007 when I was in um, Asia, in Thailand, and I wanted to get my team to think a little bit differently uh, and to experiment in new technology. And the idea was, the challenge was, how can we completely kill plastic cards? Because consumers in Thailand, Thai uh, citizens, are, are very quick to move between banks. And it's very easy because the bank will, the receiving bank or the new bank will set up all your standing orders and everything, right? So they'll issue you a new plastic card, credit card, debit card. So we said, well, how can we make customers more more sticky? So we came up with an idea of injecting an RFID device, radio frequency identifier. It's the size of a grain of rice, injecting that into an individual. So then, in theory, you could walk to an ATM, wave your hand, be recognized by the ATM, and then just put in your PIN code. So no plastic cards, right? And if the method of authentication is embedded in someone's body, there's probably a strong chance they're not going to move banks very often. So it was an experiment. It never became live. And then my team turned around and said to me, that's a great idea, boss. We need a guinea pig. Guess who the guinea pig is? You've got a grain of rice in your body right now. Yeah, it's just here. I mean, clearly your your listeners can't see that, but... Uh, it's in, it's injected into my hand. It's it's the same kind of device that you put into a dog or a cat, you know. And so we got that working with one of our ATMs and actually with one of our teller systems. Um, it was never going to be commercial. You can't imagine the Bank of Thailand allowing a bank to inject their customers. I'm speechless, actually. I'm re- I really am. I asked that question without <laughs> any expectation. You give me an answer quite like that. But the effect that it had upon the team, the technology team, uh, the next year ahead, there was a whole bunch of new innovations and crazy ideas that were coming up. It just got people to see the light and that we had to move the bank forward. We have to keep reinventing ourselves and experimenting. And probably nine times out of 10, none of these ideas would <laughs> would be commercial. But if there was one that would, then that's worth making a bet on. I've met, I've met a, a cyborg today, guys. <laughs> And apparently you're into Italian motorbikes. Clearly all about looks because everyone knows Japan's got that on lock. <laughs> hey, look, no, there's something about uh, big Italian motorbikes, uh, especially when you're in a country like Hong Kong and uh, you roll up to the to the traffic lights and uh, you flash the noise. And, uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's great. I, I love driving uh, motorbikes, but uh, not so much anymore. Um, getting a little bit too old, you know, when you have an accident, bones break a little bit too easily. So, uh I'm uh, managing my risk. Hey, I'm a banker, right? So you've got to manage risk. Sure. I was just going to say your board probably wouldn't appreciate that hobby. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the last album or single you bought on iTunes? Um, the last, uh, oh, this is embarrassing. Um, I bought, there's a collection of um, latest chart music called the Now Collection. It's called Now That's What I Call Music. So I bought number 90 was the last one I bought. And uh, my daughter and I share that. So, uh, yeah, something something we uh, we laugh about in the family. Our, our tastes in music. And I'm uh, many, many years older than her. So uh, that's great. That's fantastic. Well, listen, that's it for me. Uh, last question, though, is is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had? I think, look, I think you've, um, you've asked all the right questions. Um, it's been a real pleasure spending time with you very interesting and 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 i will i will take time to listen to your podcast i have to apologize i haven't listened to any yet so i'll look them up tonight don't make me send people you know what i mean like, i'm a nice guy but you know it could get mean up in here i got a I, look i got a 13 hour flight ahead of me tonight so i'll download a few and listen to them on my on my iphone i promise that well you're certainly in good company because we've interviewed some great people and you've certainly an awesome addition so thank you very much 
pleasure. Good talking to you. We'd like to thank Audible.com for sponsoring this week's episode of African Tech Conversations. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial right now at audibletrial.com slash africantech. That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.